0: All right, question for everyone. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Go ahead and put them up. Let's see. Okay. Had some raised high, had some like, you could see me, but no one else kind of, okay. What were they? To lose weight? Eat healthier? Exercise more? Those are three of mine. Doc orders, right? Save up for something? Be more patient, anybody? To read your Bible, anyone? To be more productive? Okay, for those who made those New Year's resolutions, how many of you are still going at it? Those are laughs of recognition, meaning we fell off. Well, you're not alone. Why is it that so many of our New Year's resolutions fall short? We can't even make it halfway to January, in fact, David Desteno, he's a psychology professor at Northeastern, he wrote a New York Times, an article for the New York Times on New Year's resolutions. He says that by January 8th, it's tomorrow, 25% of all New Year's resolutions will have fallen by the wayside. Eight days in, 25% have already fallen off. By the end of the year, less than 10% of New Year's resolutions are faithfully kept. And I think that's actually probably a bit optimistic. He goes on to say, the reason is, is because humans are, this is funny, notoriously bad at resisting temptation, especially especially if we're busy, tired, or stressed. So that's bad news for us in this room, right? Who in here is exempt from being busy, tired, and stressed? And I don't think I'm just saying that because I had a baby two weeks ago. You see, New Year's resolutions feel more like promises that we instantly break and desperate longings to be different than we really are. And because this is America, it's hard for us to shake that manifest destiny, right? It's hard for us to escape that instinctual belief that we can make and form ourselves into a better version if we just apply the right amount of desire, willpower, and time. Now listen, I'm not against resolutions. I'm actually for it. I, I would encourage all of you to take time throughout the year to grow in self-awareness, to rightly understand where your, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. I think it's a great idea to set goals. I'm a big fan of discipline and self-control. I'm a big fan of all of that. But as we start 2018... I want us to be resolved to avoid the temptation to see your resolution simply as a way toward self-improvement because what you don't need this morning is to dig down deep and on your own remake yourself physically and spiritually. We don't need more stuff. What we need is a vision, a picture of what could be with the strong conviction that it should be. See, last week we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and in that prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray, he said these words, Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our hope is that we would see God's kingdom in Waltham as it is in heaven. What we need most this morning is a vision of the gospel. We need to see that God's love for us most uh, expressly made visible by Jesus Christ is the only anchoring vision toward any uh, satisfaction and real meaning in life. You see, the reason our resolutions fail is because the resolver fails. Our most basic and most soul-satisfying needs are not going to be made and met by greater resolution, but only by redemption. This morning, I want to walk through a prayer found in Ephesians that we just read a couple minutes ago, which is prayed by the Apostle Paul for believers in Jesus Christ. It's actually a prayer, an ancient prayer, that's being prayed for all believers across all time. It's a visionary prayer, and my hope is that it would become a vision for us this year as we look to Jesus for him to work powerfully in us so that he can work wonderfully through us both individually and corporately as the body of Christ at Seven Mile Road. Because there's this principle that's laced all throughout Scripture, that what God does in us, He intends to do through us. And this prayer gives us a vision that's going to first call us to look upward, then it's going to move inward, and lastly, it's going to cause us to go outward. So let's look. uh, jump into the text in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3. As we look upward in this prayer, I'll read these words again from the Apostle Paul. Look with me at the text. He says this For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. And we'll stop right there. Now, a bit of context so that we understand what's going on here. The book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a local church in Ephesus you got to realize Paul was like a father figure to this church. He was there. He built it from the ground up with his church planting buddies. He was instrumental in its beginning. And he actually stayed in Ephesus multiple times in his ministry to, uh, to fellowship with believers, to be trained to grow in his own walk and understanding of the Lord. This is a church that loved Paul. And Paul loved this church. And so he begins... For this reason, he's telling us why he is praying. What is motivating Paul to pray? Well, if you read the first two chapters of the book of Ephesians, you're gonna find this wonderful articulation of the gospel. You see, for the first half of the letter, Paul's been writing about the grace of God to bring both Jews and Gentiles together and to form this new humanity. And all the ways in which the old humanity under Adam has failed. What God's plan for redemption is, is to bring up a new Adam, Jesus Christ himself, to be our new champion of humanity, and by him to bring all people together to create this new humanity that rightly images God to a lost world. It's a new community through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's talked about how all of us without Christ are dead and our trespasses and sin. But through Christ, God makes us alive, not by things that we do, because dead men can't work. Have you noticed that? Once you're dead, you're dead. That's why Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, because he's rich in mercy and love, has made us alive with Christ. So then Paul bows his knees and he prays this prayer. Bowing is this outward physical posture that represents an inner spiritual posture of need and dependence, of humility and reverence. See, we can pray in any position, right? We can pray standing up. We can pray laying down. You can pray when you're walking, when you're jogging, when you're running. You can pray at the end of the day sitting down. But there's something about bowing a knee to pray that expresses a neediness, kind of an earnestness A humility of saying, I've got nowhere else to go. Then Paul tells us, not only is he bowing his knee, but he's praying to the Father. See, Paul's looking up. He's looking at the Father. He's saying, where does my help come from? And he knows his help comes from the Lord. Paul knows his help, his vision, the only kind of vision that will be lasting and satisfying is going to come from God the Father. And right away, when we hear this word father, it should invoke in us this this sense of intimacy. It speaks of God as the one who is the father who seeks out the good for his family. And implied in that, which Paul's already talked about, is if God is our father, then we are his children. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so therefore, God is not simply the source of our creation origin, which he is. He is the source of our redemption because we were far away. And the Bible says that he brought us near, not merely as citizens of the kingdom, which we are. He has brought us not merely as friends, which we are. He has brought us as near as you can possibly be as family. And so because he's our father, we can go to him with confidence knowing that he will listen to us. Why? Because good fathers enjoy spending time with their children. So I don't know if you've had a good image and representation of a father or maybe you've had a bad one. And so even hearing the word father is hard to hear. No matter your background, no matter your story, what we know is that God our father is good and he does good to his children, he does good for them and he enjoys spending time with them. Paul goes on and he says, I pray about my knees to God the Father, from whom every family is named. This means that everyone and everything for that matter finds its origin in God. This is the truth that's declared in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Look at me. You are not a cosmic accident. You're not. You are not the result of unguided natural selection. We are here because a loving father created out of an overflow of his goodness, not out of need, but out of desire. He wanted to share his goodness, truth, and beauty with us. And so Paul, with eyes looking upward, says, God is able to do all that we ask according to the riches of his glory. See, when he looks up at God, he sees a God who lacks nothing. He's asking, how is God able to answer this prayer? God is able to answer this prayer because the resources God has at his disposal are limitless and inexhaustible. See, it's out of an overflow of his abundance that he will answer Paul's prayer. He gives according to the riches of his glory. So what's glory? It's a word we throw around in Christian circles a lot, but what does it really mean? When we talk about God's glory, what we're talking about is the radiance of his splendor, the perfection of his character and activity. In saying God's glory, it's simultaneously, in one word, speaking of his love, his power, and his goodness. It's the sum total of all of his amazing attributes wrapped up in this word glory, beauty, and light. And not only does God give in abundance, but he gives in accordance with his glory. What that means is that what God gives is good. He does not give bad gifts. Okay, we just finished Christmas. Anybody get any bad gifts? Does anyone know any just notoriously bad gift givers? I do. But I'm not going to mention names today. Protect the guilty in case some of them podcast this later. But there's just some people, they don't know how to give good gifts. But that's not God. Let me say it this way. God isn't stingy or withholding. He's not greedy or manipulative. And he always gives the best gifts. So why is God's glory good news for you and me this morning? It's because God the Father is able to meet our needs. He is not lacking anything. And because he doesn't need anything, catch this, he is free to give everything. There's no, he's got no lack. He never operates out of scarcity. He never says, I'd love to give, but I can't. I've got to keep this over here. He has an abundance. It's limitless. It's inexhaustible. So he's free to give generously to all. See, Paul begins this visionary prayer by looking upward at God the Father from whom all blessings flow. Now let's keep moving as Paul moves this vision inward. Look with me at verse 16b. So he's praying that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, there's a lot of wonderful truths in that. There's four things Paul is praying for us in the meat of of this part of the prayer. If you're taking notes, here they are. Paul prays that we would have strength, that we would have love, that we'd have knowledge, and we'd have fullness. Okay, let me break those down. First, Paul prays that believers would be strengthened by the indwelling of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Let me read those verses again so you don't miss it. He prays that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, a little anthropology 101 this morning. Didn't know you were getting that today. That's for free. Human beings are both material and immaterial. We are body and soul, flesh and spirit. We're made up of two primary components. Or another way to say it is we're made up of things that are tangible You can touch it, taste it, you can use your senses on it, and things that are intangible, things that are visible and invisible. And what Paul is talking about here is about the inner person, the heart, the soul, the spirit, which are all one and the same. The Bible uses all kinds of words to speak about this inner component, this immaterial part of us that we know is real even though we can't see it. Even though it's invisible, when you meet a person, you know they're more than just a shell of flesh and blood, right? It's their personality. It's what makes them who they are. It's the center of your personality where the thoughts and the will and the the, motions and the desires all reside. What he's talking about here is that both Christ and the Spirit indwell us which again is to speak about God dwelling inside of the believer. Now, this is, a, this, is, this is a metaphor. What we don't really mean is that God is living inside the space between like your bones and your blood and your organs, whatever that cavity is. He's just like crammed up in there. What he's talking about being indwelling us, you've got to, we've got to go back to the Old Testament to make sense of it. You see, in the Old Testament, God's spirit wanted to be among his people. But sin destroyed that relationship. And, 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 and what happened to Adam and Eve? They were kicked out of the garden of God's presence, right? But God's desire has always been to live among his people. And so he started to create this plan of redemption to, so that God and man could dwell together again. And if you fast forward through the Bible, we see this thing called the tabernacle, which is like this movable worship space, that God is able to live with his spirit among his people because in the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple, it's kind of this permanent place, it's purified, it's made holy. There are certain rules and regulations around what can happen inside of it and what won't happen in it. And without getting bogged down on all of that, what's important to know is that it's God's presence among his people, that there's this space created so that God can be with his people. That's always been at the forefront of God's plan. Now, when you fast forward into the New Testament, on the cross, when Jesus died, the Bible says that this temple curtain, which used to kind of uh, keep and house God's manifest presence in, that when Jesus died on the cross, that the temple curtain was torn in two. Now, this is not just some Bible nerd detail, okay? This is huge, What this means is that God's presence, which had only resided in this building, has now left the building to take up residence in a new temple. And the Bible tells us that that new temple is the body of Christ, of which every believer is a part. Now, some of you may be thinking, didn't you say that this letter was written to a church? Didn't you say that this letter was written to a group of believers? Wouldn't they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts? Wouldn't they already have the Spirit indwelling them, living in them, animating them to live lives as God's children? And the answer is yes, that when you become a Christian, God is pleased to see you as a new temple, to live in you, to animate and and to, to change you from the inside out, that God is literally with you. When Jesus came at Christmas, his name was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. How is it that God can be with us? He chooses to take residence up in our hearts. And so when Paul is saying, I pray that you would be strengthened with the indwelling of the Spirit and Christ living in your heart, he's not talking about something that hasn't already happened. It has already happened, but here's what's going on. Paul is praying for more. Think of the the Holy Spirit and and of Christ's presence in your life in terms of degrees. He's praying that they would be fortified and invigorated with more. He's asking God, I want more of your presence. I want more of your spirit. I want you to take up more residence in us. The word for dwell here is not the word used for like a temporary place, like a hotel or a motel. God isn't just passing through. He's not here for, for a long weekend to take up residence in your heart for some temporary time. The word used for dwell here speaks of permanence, the idea of a home. He's making a home in us to be with us because he's for us. This prayer is asking for God to give more and more of himself to each and every believer and that by it, we would be strengthened by it. See, when God dwells inside of us, he takes up residence and he makes it his home. And where the Lord dwells, he reigns. He doesn't come merely to soothe you or to cheer you on as like like this cheerleader in your life. When God takes up residence in your heart, he comes to be master and Lord. Paul doesn't pray that we'd be strengthened with more resolve to muster up the courage to live life. Paul doesn't say, my prayer is that you would have energy and strength to get yourself together. No, that's the American dream, right? That says pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Oprah says, find the inner strength inside of you. It's there. Just keep looking for it. Nike says, just do it. The Bible says, nope. God will strengthen you. He is there to fight with you against your sin. He is there to provide daily renewal. Bible says that though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit See, we don't need more resolve. We don't need more willpower. What we need is more of God's redemption working in us, that which is pleasing to him. First and foremost, this is a prayer asking for strength and power that we would be transformed day by day, degree by degree into the image of Christ. Now, the second thing Paul prays for is love. He prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. See, what's happened is Jesus has created a new humanity. And where selfishness and pride motivated us before, now love is to be the utmost virtue. It is to be the guiding motivation in all of life. When we think about why we do anything that we do, love should be the motivation. This is a prayer asking that this new family would love their father and love each other as brothers and sisters. See, with the transformation of the spirit who's renewing us day by day, they need to love each other so that uh, because there's so many things in this life that would seek to separate us, right? Just in this room right here, we've got different personality types that are gonna rub up against each other. There's different races. There's different ethnicities. There's different social statuses. There's different backgrounds, different genders, and the list goes on and on. The Christian is to have deep roots And a firm foundation of love. If we're ever going to love each other in a meaningful way. When Paul Paul talks about roots, he's drawing upon this agricultural metaphor. And being grounded speaks about a foundation, which is an architectural metaphor. What he's saying is those who are strengthened by the Spirit and in whom Christ dwells will have their lives rooted and uh, grounded in love. When you think about those terms, they speak about stability, don't they? When you think about something being firmly rooted, having a firm foundation, it's stable. So what causes stability for the believer? If I could pull on that metaphor, what causes a tree to grow a hundred feet tall and for a house to withstand fierce winds? Well, it's deep roots and a firm foundation. Paul is saying Love is to be the soil in which our lives are rooted and growing in and love is to be the foundation upon which our lives are built. So Paul prays for strength that you'd be renewed and transformed. He prays that you would be grounded and rooted in love. The third thing he prays for is that we would have knowledge. Now not just intellectualism, not just data and facts. The kind of knowledge Paul speaks about here is that we would be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the width and the depth of the love of Christ. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, I thought Paul just talked about love. Why is he talking about it again? And again, you're right. We need to be rooted and grounded in love, but we have to continue to grow in that love. By using the language of breadth and length and width and depth, what he's talking about here is in this poetic way, he's describing the immensity and the complexity of the love of Jesus Christ. See, God's love is broad enough to include anyone. God's love is long enough to be patient, long-suffering, and it lasts for eternity. God's love is deep enough to reach even the most hardened sinner. That person you think could never come to Christ. Let me tell you, friends, God's love is deep. It can reach down into the depths and pull anyone out. And God's love is high enough to lift us to the heavens in perfection. See, God's love is huge. It's wide, it's deep, it's vast. It's an inexhaustible well. Paul is saying, if we're going to, not only do we need to be rooted in that love, but we need to keep growing in that love as we live our lives. So he's praying that God would increase our knowledge of God's love. He also says this happens best in community. It's one of my favorite little phrases in this paragraph. Did you see what he said? In verse 18, he said, with all the saints. Right up there. I'm not making this up. Can we know the love of Christ on our own? Sure. You might know a fraction of it. But an individualistic understanding will be limited by our own limited experience. See, in order to mine the depths of God's love, it takes a whole community, all the saints together. That's why at Seven Mile Road, one of my constant prayers is that we would become a a diverse body of believers. We need people from all backgrounds, all races, all ethnicities, all colors. We need young and old. We need rich and poor. We need men and women. We need blue-collar and white-collar. It's when we come together in our diversity that we'll see the love of Christ expressed through each other and it'll help us grow in our knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that the the knowledge that's available surpasses understanding. If you didn't get it before by the length and breadth and depth and width and height and all those words about God's love, he says it's going to surpass your knowledge. What he's saying is his love can't be exhausted. We will spend eternity mining the depths of God's inexhaustible love and grace. It's not an intellectual exercise. It certainly is part of that. We've got to grow in our actual understanding of of the love of Christ, but it's much more than that. The more we know of the love of Christ and what he did for us, it will start to change our hearts. And Paul says we need strength and power to do this because there's so many temptations that would cause us to wanna turn away from the love of Christ and to settle for other lesser loves. You see, we needed God's power to save us in the first place, and we also need God's power to keep us. And by his grace, you don't have to guess if that's a prayer that God wants to answer. He's written it right here in the scripture saying, Paul's praying this, it's been forever um, captured for us in the scripture so that we would know this is one of those prayers you don't have to guess if God wants to answer it. God wants you to grow in the knowledge of his love so that you might be changed by it, so you would see the truth and goodness and beauty of it. Because when we really and truly know the love of Christ, we won't want to settle for anything else. Now the last thing Paul prays for us here is uh, this last big request for this uh, inward vision is for fullness. So he's prayed for strength. He's prayed for love. He's prayed for knowledge. Now he says fullness. Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. See, in Christ, we have come to fullness. And yet, this is that paradox, we still have room for growth. For Christians, We are righteous before the Lord with nothing to add in order to be made right and to be adopted. That is secure. Theologically speaking, Paul's talking about the difference between justification and sanctification. Now, let me break those two big words down. Justification is a status, it's it's answering the question Have I been made right before God? What has been the verdict of my trial when at the end of our lives we all stand trial before the judge? What has been the verdict? Guilty or not guilty? Those who have trusted in Christ have received a verdict already right now of not guilty. Christ already stood in your place. Your sin and your record of debt were placed on him. He went to trial on your behalf. He was punished as if he had done all the things that you have done. He was punished as if he thought all the thoughts that you and I have thought. He was punished as if he was lived, lived his life out of the motivations that you and I have lived out of. He went on trial. and He was punished already for our sins in our place. And it's based on his work, not our work, that we are declared righteous. That's justification. Sanctification is the work of God where he changes us from the inside out right now so that we actually live lives as his children. You see, because of the justification, we are already made right. We're already accepted. We're already loved. And therefore, now we get to live out of that love into delight as we obey Paul is praying that we would continue to grow in that fullness, that we would be more and more filled with the Spirit to live lives that represent this new humanity to a broken world. Paul's praying that we would live in such a way that people would see our lives and as a result, that they would actually see God. Paul is asking for the very fullness and perfection of God to fill our lives today. See, there's coming a day, when the work of redemption will be finally and fully complete. That's the great hope we have. But until that day, we're asking God to bring some of that future perfection into the present. Paul says in another place in the book of Philippians that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion God's love has already invaded your life. You've been accepted as beloved children. And now we're living out of that adoption as his children. Another way to think about it is this. When sin entered into the world, it started to decreate and break down and unravel everything. The work of Christ has been to recreate the world and to mend all that has been broken. In us, that work means that we're becoming more and more human day by day as Christ works to mend us and to recreate us. Jesus is restoring all that's been broken and redeeming all that's been lost. There's a fullness coming, but we get to actually enjoy it now bit by bit as God makes us more and more like Christ. So let me put all that together. What is Paul's prayer for our inner transformation, this inward vision? That we would have the strength of the Spirit in the ruling presence of Christ. That the love of Jesus would be what roots us and grounds our lives. And that we would have ever-increasing growth of the knowledge of Christ's love in all its dimensions. And that the fullness of God himself would work in our lives today. So now we've seen this upward part of the prayer, this inward part of the prayer, Let's look at this last piece, the outward part of the prayer. Look with me at these last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The way Paul ends his prayer is simply beautiful. Our prayer cannot end focused on us. It has to move outside of us. He says, God works beyond our prayers, thoughts, and dreams. See, the Father's ability to give and answer prayer goes beyond and exceeds our capacity for even asking or imagining. And as he transforms us, he works in us to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. Just think about it. This letter was written in about A.D. 60, okay? Long time ago. Do you think Paul could have comprehended that one day the very empire that had him in chains. As Paul writes this letter from jail, do you think Paul could have comprehended that the very empire who has him imprisoned at that very moment would one day adopt Christianity as the official religion of the empire? Do you think Paul could have comprehended that one day, by the power of the gospel, Christianity would be the most believed faith in the entire world? Do you think he would have foreseen that the words he was writing would become God's preserved word to the world? The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's been translated into more languages than any other book. Do You think Paul could have even comprehended or even asked that prayer? Of course not. Paul's saying God is able to do far more abundantly than we could either, ever ask or imagine. And that same power that is working back then, is still working today. The power that raised Christ from the dead is alive and active, working in us right now to achieve infinitely more than we could ever ask or imagine. Paul ends this prayer by saying, God is able to do it. God is not idle, he's not inactive, he's not weak or dead. He's able to do all that we ask, which means he's listening to us and he hears our prayers when we pray. He's also able to do more than we ask or think. He is reading our thoughts. He sees our dreams. He knows our desires. And he's working out even the things we forget to pray or, or are too afraid to ask for. And he's able to do abundantly more. God has set his own expectations far beyond the expectations we even put on him. His plans are bigger. His dreams are higher and there's no limit to what God can do. The way God works is that throughout the Bible, you'll see this. He works in us so that he can work through us. It's always been that way. We're always blessed in order to be a blessing. The reason you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, the reason why God has taken up residence in your heart and is actively at work transforming your life is so that we can serve and bless others. That's why this prayer has an outward focus. He doesn't just end the prayer by praying for an inward transformation. He ends by saying, God, what you do in us, will you do abundantly more through us? Think of it this way. As God is filling us up with overflowing, all that runoff impacts and affects other people. All of, the whole point of God giving according to his glory and out of the abundance of his riches is so that he would fill us up to overflowing so just like him, we would bless and impact others out of our own abundance. Paul says it doesn't even stop with us. It continues through all generations. Think about Jesus. Jesus did not look to his own interests. He wasn't self-focused. In fact, he gave up his life so that we could have life. He emptied himself so we could be filled up. He was broken so that we could be mended. and He works in us so that he can do abundantly more through us. That is a powerful prayer. My hope is that you would pray this prayer for yourself throughout 2018 and that you would also pray this prayer for our church. As we close today, I want to apply this to Seven Mile Road for just a second and talk for a few moments about what we're going for here as a church. My hope is that it wouldn't just, that this prayer wouldn't just end with us personally, but it would be something that we pray as a church family family corporately. And So you've probably seen this on our documentation. It's up on our website. But Seven Mile Road is a diverse gospel-formed family of servant missionaries that exist to make disciples in Waltham, by providing clear and compelling witness to the real Jesus. Let me quickly break that down. When I say we're a diverse, gospel-formed family of servant missionaries, here's what we mean. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saved sinners, of whom I am the foremost, is this, that the gospel forms and shapes who we are and everything we do. When we're asking, like, what will we be about? We always ask, does it move the gospel forward? Because we believe that the grace of God transforms everything. And we want to be a gospel-saturated people where God has worked in us so that he can work through us. We also want to be diverse. Not because it's cool and trendy right now to be diverse, but because the Bible says God's family is diverse. He is the one who's making one family. He is the one bringing people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation into his new humanity. And because Jesus paid the adoption price with his life, we are adopted as family. With this adoption comes a new name, a new identity, a new mission. So we're family. We're also servants. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we're also missionaries. Just as the Father sent Jesus on a rescue mission to redeem sinners, we live as a sent people with a mission. That's all it means. A missionary means to live with intentionality and mission. We're sent out. We're sent out every week to go into our community, our cities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, to be disciples who make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. See, Jesus came to this world to seek and save the lost. He came to make disciples. And we want to be those men and women who see the surpassing worth and beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ. People who've repented of their sin, turned away from it to cling to Christ and who are seeking to live all of our lives in light of the gospel. And what do we want to do? We want to provide clear and compelling witness to the real Jesus. See, in a world where everybody gets their own social platform, who get to say, I think Jesus is this, and I think he's that, and there's all kinds of um, theories and, and um, um, uh, misquotations and all that about Jesus, we want to be the people who are saying, look, this is who Jesus really is. We want to be clear about him, and we want to provide compelling witness. And hear me when I say this. The most compelling witness to the real Jesus is a life lived for him. As we are sent out, we are lights. We are a city on a hill that people should see us, and in seeing us, see Jesus. And so we want to boldly but humbly provide clear and compelling witness to the real Jesus. This is our hope. Our big hope, our big vision is to see Waltham and beyond saturated with the gospel so that every man, every woman, every child would have a daily encounter with the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus Christ. So what would it look like for us at Seven Mile Road to desperately bow to the Father this year in prayer, not asking for more health and more wealth, but asking God to work in us, that we would be a people continually living in dependence on his spirit, letting Christ rule in our hearts, letting him govern what we say yes to and letting him govern what we say no to. What would it look like if we had a vision to be a people rooted and grounded in love, where our stability came not from our circumstances and if things were going well, but our stability came from God's love flowing in us and through us. What would it look like if we spent our free time this year growing in the knowledge of God's love so that it impacted and informed every decision we made? What would it look like if our greatest desire was to see God's fullness on display in our lives? And what would it look like if we asked God to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine this year in us and through us? That's the vision for this year. That's the prayer I think God has for us in our church this year. Will you join me as we seek God together in 2018? Let me pray.